welcome back to another episode of Well-Lit Path. In Psalm 36, David speaks of the reality of the wicked, then offsets that with the reality of God. But first, how was your week? Uh, I've recently been reading some older books by familiar authors, and a lot of people have probably read these books. And if I said them, would be asking yourselves, would Tom, you're just now reading these books, so I'm not going to put myself in that position, and I'm not going to list them off. Uh, but what I love about some of these books is that the concepts that they present are timeless. We're evil. God is good. And as I look at these realities, I can't help but see in them God's holiness. Uh, he's set apart. He's high above everything else. Uh, this is his holiness. This is how we know even our good is wicked compared to his goodness. Uh, his goodness is unattainable. Our good, our righteousness is like filthy rags by comparison. And I can't help but think if we could just think on his holiness, allow it to consume our thoughts in our lives, actually put him above all else in our lives, would our lives not be more fulfilled, more enriched? Would we not, in our pursuit of understanding his holiness, have a greater impact on those around us? You know, not just our family, not just our church, not just our brothers and sisters in Christ, but those that are still bound in their wickedness, those that are still enslaved by it. To where it becomes so attractive to ponder God's holiness and how that reflects on his love for us, that they would be overwhelmed with the desire to have this type of relationship with him as well. This is the power of the gospel. That while we were yet wretched sinners, Christ died for us so that he could live in us, be a part of our lives. That we should begin to understand the most basic reality of God's holiness and then give him glory and worship because of it. Holy, 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 holy is the Lord God Almighty. You know, I really believe the more I read through the Psalms, I believe David had a good grasp on God's holiness. He understood how wretched we are, how wretched he was. And even at his best, he stood in awe and honor of God's holiness and the fact that he even considered man and that he would even consider a lowly shepherd boy. Here in Psalm 36, we see a glimpse of how he understands God's holiness. Psalm 36, beginning in verse 1. The transgression of the wicked saith within my heart that there is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flattereth himself in his own eyes, until his iniquity be found to be hateful. The words of his mouth are iniquity and deceit. He, he hath left off to be wise and to do good. He devises mischief upon his bed. He setteth himself in a way that is not good. He abhorreth not evil. Thy mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens, and thy faithfulness reacheth unto the clouds. Thy righteousness is like the great mountains. Thy judgments are a great deep. O Lord, thou preservest man and beast. 
How excellent is thy loving kindness, O God! Therefore the children of men put their trust under the shadow of thy wings. They shall be abundantly satisfied with the fatness of thy house, and thou shalt make them drink of the river of thy pleasures. For with thee is the fountain of life. In thy light shall we see light. O continue thy loving kindness unto them that know thee and thy righteousness to the upright in heart. Let not the foot of pride come against me, and let not the hand of the wicked remove me. There are the workers of iniquity fallen. They are cast down and shall not be able to rise. You know, I I love David here. He starts out, Lord, the wicked are wicked, and here's why, and they are wicked, wicked. In light of their wickedness, of our wickedness, our wickedness, Davy quickly moves to, you know what, God? Wow. You are so holy, so good, so worth worshiping. So let's explore how he makes that transition. Now, this is a shorter chapter than what we've been studying recently, but we're going to dive into every detail of it if you'll walk with me just a little. David says, when the wicked do wrong things, when they sin, they do it because there isn't a fear of God before their eyes. And as we look at the world today, this may be the truest this statement has ever been, with the exception of the time before Noah. You know, society has done, tried their best to just strike God from the record completely. And it's not just here in the U.S. You see it worldwide. You see it all over. And this mentality is as old as sin itself, but it's become the banner of some form of twisted, I don't know, spiritual capitalism. Uh, Do what you want to, say what you want to, be what you want to, to be happy. If happiness is the gain we seek, then whatever it takes to obtain it in the free market of sin is what what we'll pay. Sin is in high demand, and the cost is even higher. The currency we trade in is every desire, every whim that will get us to that goal at the sacrifice of the well-being sometimes of ourselves and others, the feelings of others, and the eternity of others. Our society has become like the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. We want what we want, and how dare you tell us that we can't have it, we will even take it if we have to. And this applies to money, sex, drugs, religion. It can be applied to everything we see in the world today. And we make these things our God, and the fear of God isn't even a thought anymore. The wicked person sees self as the epitome of achievement, as the only God worth worshiping. Well, where's the room for the real God in that? And it gets excused with, if, well, if it feels good, it must be good. Well, that's, that's sin talking right there. God has defined good for us. He set good in motion. Sin has corrupted our feeling of what is good, but not the reality of what is good. And this is exactly how Satan deceived Eve. Well, sure, God said it was bad to disobey him, but what what is bad, really? And why would God want to keep something good from you? 
This thing in front of you must be good then. It must be better than the good of God. So Eve purposed that God wasn't as good as the fruit, and she ate. She allowed the fruit to trump God's holiness in her eyes to cloud her fear of him. She was deceived by the serpent into deceiving herself, and thus she purposed to offer the same to Adam. Here, look, this is, this is good. And Adam willfully accepted the fruit, deciding in that moment that Eve was a good better than the good God had to offer. So he redefined good for himself as his heart's desire in the moment. It's not that we don't know good. It's that we allow our desires to change our thoughts on the truth that we know is an absolute good. We say to ourselves, well, this good must be better. And aren't we all guilty? I want to be good, but I want to commit this sin as well. Well, I know that I've already been forgiven of it, the Christian may say, so I'll just acknowledge it to God after I've done it. And what a slippery slope that can be. If you've never been down that road, man, God bless you, because I have. And even at those points in my life, I was redefining that God's goodness would excuse my immediate sin. And while it is true that it's forgiven, that's not the goodness that God wants to show me. He's shown me that already. He wants to bless me abundantly, and when I let my relationship be damaged with him, when I purpose in my heart to break it, it's damaging to me, not to him. It's not good at all. It makes a mockery of his goodness towards me when I seek to sin so that grace may abound. And Paul warns us against this explicitly. David moves on from the wickedness of the wicked, and let's be real in that we're all wicked. Even as Christians, we're nothing but saved sinners. But he moves on from that to the goodness of God, to his holiness, to his mercy. See, even, the, even though we are this wicked, even though the world is this wicked and wants to be wicked, God's mercy abounds. Justifiably, he could wipe all of the wicked off of the earth, and he will one day, but he could do it now and be just. And if he were to do that, he would still be love. He would still be long-suffering because his mercy is higher than the heavens. Well, how high are the heavens? We've got to understand from a time perspective, um, the heavens and the clouds were something that was unattainable for David as he sat there or laid there and looked up at the clouds in the sky and the, the blue of the sky above that. 
But let's take that a little bit further because we know today that as man, we can attain those things. Let's take that intent and let's move past the earth's atmosphere. I like to think of it this way. His mercy is as vast as an ever-expanding universe. As much as we can't reach even the next galaxy, we can't measure God's mercy. His withholding from us what we deserve, the, the rightful and righteous judgment for our sin, God allows his mercy to just continue. His faithfulness to who he says he is is like trying to touch the Goldilocks planet while at the same time having our feet firmly planted on the ground. It can't be done. And when we compare it to the type of mercy that we can show, if we show mercy, it can be measured. If we withhold punishment from someone, uh, our, our kids, for example, when we know and they know that they deserve punishment, it's easily defined. And typically, we won't extend the same mercy again for the same offense. If we were asked to show that same mercy to someone we didn't know, I would almost guarantee the likelihood of us exercising mercy would be slim. Yet since the flood, God has shown mercy to mankind in giving them a chance to come to him. Since the flood, God the Son has walked among us, lived for us, died for us, and Praise God risen again for us. Even as they crucified his only begotten son, and hear me on this, he would have been justified to wipe all of us out before they crucified Christ just for the way that he had been treated. Instead, God in his mercy watched his son give his life so that he could extend to us grace that we didn't deserve. And make no mistake, his righteousness, his sense of justice and understanding of it is as firm as a mountain. Our guilt can't be excused, but it can be paid on our behalf. It's only in applying the payment of Christ to our account that we can be pardoned but the punishment itself was still levied. God won't sway from that. He can't let it go. He doesn't love at the cost of his righteousness, and his righteousness doesn't suffer because of his love. And yet, even though he knows we deserve less, and not just less, but I would say even worse, both the wicked and the just are made benefactors of his mercy. He allows the sun to shine, the grass and crops to grow, life to be lived. He doesn't immediately kill the wicked when he knows they've rejected him. Instead, like Christ with Judas, he still reveals to them over and over again in the testimony of his creation that he loves them. Have you ever considered that? When a person's met with the gospel and they reject it, whether it's the first time they hear it or the hundredth time they hear it, 
God knows which one of those is the final time, the final rejection they will make of the gospel. Does he then just kill them on the spot because they rejected him? I would say that the world's population and the evil we see in it make the hard argument to the contrary. And the reason why I compare this to Judas is because Judas was exposed to the gospel and Jesus himself over and over and over again, all the way up to the night that he betrayed Christ. But Christ didn't ostracize him. Christ didn't tell him that he couldn't be there anymore. Christ didn't stop sharing truth with Judas, the same as the other disciples. And despite the knowledge that all of these people continually reject him in the world, God still lets them live and enjoy the general blessings of his creation throughout their lives. Even in their unbelief, God gives them mercy in this life. Now, their eternal life will be another story, but their physical life is still a product of God's limitless mercy. Their eternal decision is the determining factor in where they fall in his eternal judgment. And yet he still preserves man and beast. Even the animals who have no hope of salvation benefit from his mercy. So David exclaims the excellence of his loving kindness, generally to all, but specifically to those who place themselves under the shadow of God's wings. It's here under his wings that we find our true purpose. It's here that we experience the depths of his love and mercy. Now, I wonder sometimes, do we really understand what it means to be under his wing? I would probably argue pretty harshly that we mostly either do not or we discount the importance of it as born-again believers. We like to think of it as his general uh, follow-us-everywhere protection. But here's the thing about a hen when she gathers her chicks under her wings. When she's done so, she doesn't move where they want to move. They go where she moves and they remain under her wings only in that they match her speed and stay on her path. Yet she never goes so fast that any get left behind or find themselves outside of the protection of her wings suddenly. And to trust God means to lean into his goodness and knowledge of what is actually best for us. To move when he moves and to stop when he stops. And even when we can't see where he's going, to trust that it's good for us. It's when we peek our little heads out and see that piece of grain beyond the protection of his wings that we get upset when we get snatched up by chicken hawk. If that grain would have been good for us, he would have moved to it. When he didn't, it means there's danger where that little piece of grain is. We have to trust him. We have to remain in the shadow of his wing. This is where the peace and rest are found. This is where we'll find abundant satisfaction in our sacrifices to him. 
The, the phrase used here is the fatness of thy house. And at first I thought it mean, meant like the, the bonanza or the plethora of goodness we'll find he has for us in his house. But it's not. It's speaking of us finding abundant satisfaction in sacrificing to him. You see, the fatness had to do with the sacrifices that were burned up at the altar in the temple, his house. When we trust him, when we stay under his protective will, we will find all of the satisfaction and joy we've been searching for in how we're willing to sacrifice and how we do sacrifice to him. What David is saying is that our life in God's service is not about what we get out of it, but what we can do for God, what we can give up of ourselves for him. I just don't have time to read my Bible. Well, what have we given up to make the time? I just don't have time to spend minutes or hours in prayer. Well, what have we given minutes and hours to for something that we enjoy? I just don't have time to serve at church. Well, what Sunday morning have we found more what Sunday morning function have we found more important? I can't stop doing this thing or I want to start doing this thing and all our I want to. What does God want? And do we place another order on Amazon for that sense of gratification that we get when we do it? Or do we open up the tithing app and give that amount to our church instead? The abundant satisfaction we seek can be found in our sacrifices to him. And as we sacrifice to him, making our lives more about what we give back to God than what we can get from a relationship with him, he makes us to drink from the river of his pleasures. This is really poetic language that simply means the more we sacrifice, the more satisfaction we have. And when we find our satisfaction in God, we'll find that we have and live life more abundantly. That our desires are filled because we desire God. The life springing up from the fountain is the life he intends for us. Close fellowship with our creator, our redeemer. A fellowship that can only be obtained in being less me and more Jesus. And isn't that just like God? The more we acknowledge and rightfully worship his holiness, the more we seek to glorify him, the more abundantly he enriches our lives and pours out blessing we can't measure. He says, obey me and fellowship with me will enrich your life. Not make you rich, but spiritually constantly keep you satisfied like a fountain springing up within you that never runs out. And then the light we see, the only light we can see when we live that kind of life is the kind of life we were light we were meant for, the light of his presence. It illuminates the world around us and allows us to see things we did not see before. See the struggle I'm going through? Yeah, if, if I look at it in the dimness of this world, it looks pretty bleak. But in God's light, I see that I don't have to struggle alone. 
I see that God is good to me and that even though a loved one may be gone or I got a bad report from a doctor or I lost a job or a spouse betrayed me or my kids won't speak to me or I was the victim of abuse or a violent crime or a tragedy or addiction used to rule my life. Those things do not define me. They're real, but they're not my identity. And I don't walk through them alone. But the world wants to pull me to the darkest places of those truths and keeps me and keep me stumbling around in them. And in God's light, I see a light like no other. I see that I'm broken, that I'm in need, but also that he meets every single one of those needs. God shines a light on my life and says to the hurt and the shame of those things that he is better, he's stronger, he has overcome. He takes me there under his wing and he comforts me. He lifts me up, he bathes me in his love. And while the reality of the hurt may not change, the darkness it was surrounded by can no longer remain. As God continues his loving kindness, his faithful goodness toward us, we begin to realize he does it just because he can. He's righteous because he is. He's told us as much. He's defined himself as love. He's defined himself as righteous. And when we trust him, we accept all of those things that he says about himself are true. We accept that because he said he never changes, that these actions that he shows to us also will never change. David ends with a caution. Let us never get too proud to move past how good he is. Let us never be so proud to think we could possibly earn any of his mercy, any of his grace. Let us never be so proud as to believe that we deserve any of his blessing, that we deserve any of his protection. We have to acknowledge that the hand, the influence of evil can quickly remove us from that protected place under his wing. We can be easily drawn out when we let pride cloud our standing with a holy and righteous God. Remaining in his protection, and as the old hymn says, stepping in the light, we can watch as the workers of iniquities fall in the darkness just outside. They could be under the well-lit wing of God just like us. They could find joy and abundant satisfaction in the sacrifice we make daily, the living sacrifice, the same as us. But it trips them up. They want abundance without sacrifice. They want the security of material things rather than the protection of a God they can't see. And while we see his workings as they are lit by the light we find defines him and illuminates him, those still in the darkness can't see what they're missing. And they'll never rise on their own. And for us, that should be all the more reason to let his light so shine 
before men. I'll close this week um, kind of as I've kind of come to like closing this way. I might start doing it a little more with a few lines from a, a just a really pretty song that was taken straight out of the scripture. Uh, while we may be in the shadow of his wings, the light that illuminates them lets us know where we are. The lyrics of the song go like this. The only shadow I see is the shadow of your wings, the shadow of your wings. And the only shelter I seek is the shadow of your wings, the shadow of your wings. Safe in your arms, your arms of love. Safe in your arms, your arms of love. Hey, thanks for walking with me a while as we read the word together. Won't you join me again next week? And we'll walk just a little further. If you like the podcast, go ahead and hit that follow button. If you have any questions about salvation or general podcast questions, uh, reach out to us via email at podcast at lakeworthbaptist.org. Go ahead and follow us on Instagram and Facebook by looking for LWBC underscore publications.